Amen, amen. You may be seated, New Life Downtown. Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. It's good to see you today before you head off to go watch some more hot air balloons rise uh, over our city. We all grew up with uh, childhood messages, with things that uh, we believe to be true about ourselves, about others, about the world, uh, that in many ways are sort of uh, in the background of our minds, but form a lot of the ways that we move and interact and have our being in the world. Sometimes these are implicit messages that we sort of pick up on the way from uh, our family of origin most often. Sometimes they're very explicit things. They can be so explicit that our friend Pete Scazzaro sometimes calls them scripts, things that were sort of written into us that we believe are true in some way and then determine how we go about our days. Uh, My dad had a lot of scripts that he uh, sort of just threw out there all the time as we were kids. Some of them were quite silly, uh, such as you're a Jackson so you don't play basketball. You wrestle instead. I don't know why. I, I'm still like, why was that worth a script? What was the, what's so wrong about basketball? I, I just, I, I'm still processing it. I still can't figure out exactly why that was such a big deal. Uh, another thing he said all the time was do it right the first time or don't do it at all, uh, which for a perfectionist was just a great thing to hear all the time. You know, just, it's really helped set me free uh, from that tendency to uh, make everything exactly right. Uh, But one of the other things that he said all the time was, don't ever throw the first punch, but throw the last. There are some childhood scripts that we have to unlearn as we learn how to follow Jesus (laughs) and know his way in the world. Today, we're in the third week of our series through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and his companion Ezra recount uh, the people of God's return from exile in Babylon to the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and the city walls. The story of Nehemiah picks up in 446 BC as Nehemiah hears the report of how Jerusalem's walls and its gates are still in ruins. And when he hears this news, he falls to the ground, he weeps, he prays, and he fasts. And in the middle of fasting and praying, the Lord places it on his heart to actually return to the land and begin to help lead the people in rebuilding what has been destroyed. And so he knows that he's gonna need some building permits and he's gonna have to figure out some supply chain issues. And so he goes to the king of Persia and asks for what he needs. And the king of Greece gives Nehemiah everything that he needs to go, re- to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. But we find in this part of the story that as soon as he returns... As soon as he gets back, even to the area, he encounters opposition. There are people there that are ready to pick a fight with him. Nehemiah chapter two, verse 10 says this, when Sambalot the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, when they heard what Nehemiah had been given permission to do, they were very angry that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, Sambalot, we find out later on, is connected to the area of Samaria. He's probably the governor of Samaria, been given his position by the Persian king. All these folks have been sort of set up by the Persian king to rule their area. So he's in Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. 
And then Tobiah is probably the governor of Ammon, just to the west. Later on in chapter 2, though, we find it's not just these two guys. The group keeps growing, and they're joined by Geshem, the Arab, who probably represents those on the south. And by chapter 4, we have the people of Ashdod on the east, Nehemiah, and the people are completely surrounded on all sides by those who oppose them. It's like pizza at a student ministry event. There's just people all around coming ready to attack. These folks did not want Israel to prosper. They were upset that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of God. Why is it that this would bother them so much? Why would this be so angry? It's most likely that as Jerusalem and Judea sort of lie in ruins, the rest politically and economically prospered from their suffering. That as this area was weakened, they were strengthened. They benefited actually from Jerusalem's struggles. And so their anger is actually masking the fact that they're threatened by this. They're anxious about what this is going to cost them. They have skin in the game, and they're upset that if this plan of Nehemiah's goes through, they're going to be the ones that actually lose out. So in chapters four and six, what we find is a whole series of things that this group of people begin to engage in to try to oppose Nehemiah's building project. They surround him and they set up all these tactics as a way to actually get him to stop working. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3 begins with that passage that was just read for us where they just start by mocking him. This is our closest glimpse we have at ancient Near Eastern trash talking. You know, if you build that and a fox walks on it, it's going to fall. It's like, Wow. That's harsh. Like, I'm assuming, like maybe in the ancient Near East, that was a really like, hard thing to hear. It doesn't quite hold up to what uh, we're used to. As the chapter goes on, we find that they move from mocking to conspiring, that they start sort of gathering together and they're plotting to either attack or to just try to confuse the work, to try to do something to stop this in some way. Later on in the chapter, they move on to threats that they threaten to sort of infiltrate the people and kill them and do anything they can to stop the work. In Nehemiah chapter six, they find that those things haven't worked, so now they try to trick Nehemiah. They send him a series of four letters saying, hey, you know what, let's just talk about this. Why don't you come meet us over here in our place with our people and we'll talk about it and it'll be, all be okay. And Nehemiah's like, no. I smell what you're cooking, and this is not going to be good for me. So they're trying to harm him. When that doesn't work, they move on to just public false accusations. They send now an open letter so that everybody who touches it can read it, and they're accusing him that really what his plan is is not to just rebuild Jerusalem, but to actually become king, not just governor like they are, but to take even more power. In Nehemiah 6, a little bit later on, they hire a false prophet to try to discredit him. They go on, you know, sort of a marketing campaign to smear his name, to discredit him in some way. And then by the end, they're just like straight up going for intimidation. They're doing everything they can to infiltrate his ranks so that people are talking positively about his enemies, trying to intimidate him to get him to stop his work on and on. These are the things that they're doing. And when we look at this list, we can relate to this. These are things 
that if we look at the list and stop and think for a moment, one or more of these things have happened to us at some point in our life. Maybe not to the same degree, but to some degree we have experienced these things. We were ridiculed by a a bully in elementary school. We were threatened in some way by someone with power. our, Our motives were questions. We were falsely accused of having ill intent in something that we were trying to do. We became the subject of a rumor. We were coerced or pressured into doing something that we weren't comfortable doing. If this never happened to you, then I'm assuming you never went to junior high school or had older brothers. But these things are common for us. This is what we experience in life. And if we're also honest, we've probably done one or more of these to somebody else. These are not just things that have been done to us, but they're things that we've done. They're tactics that we've employed to get our way in the world. We've insulted someone. We've sort of rallied a group together against someone else. We've issued threats. We've questioned people's motives. We've spread gossip and lies. We've tried to pressure someone into doing what it is that we wanted them to do. At times, someone did this to us first and then we hit back. They threw the first punch and we tried to throw the last one, hoping that if we returned fight for fight, that somehow it would put an end to it. And other times, we were the ones that threw the first punch and the other person jabbed back and then it just kept going. And we do this because it actually seems so very natural to us. It's so very common that when these things happen, when we feel some sort of anxiety, we feel like we have to do something about it and we react and we often react in these kinds of ways or someone in their own anxiety does this to us, causing us anxiety and then we react back. We repay what it is that they've done. And it seems when we look around our world that everyone's just doing this. This is sort of the common way of human interactions. It gets modeled for us even. Open social media and spend five minutes there, then turn it off and go pray. (laughs) Listen to our politicians and how they talk about those with opposing views. It is a vicious tennis, tennis match that is going on in our world. One serves mockery, the other hits it back. One hits back with an accusation and someone comes back with an accusation of their own. Someone issues a threat, we backhand a threat back in hopes of intimidating them. And all of this seems to be driven by an undercurrent of anxiety. That we're all afraid of losing something. We're worried about what's going on politically in our worlds. We're worried about what's going on economically. We're worried about social, cultural issues. We're even like worried to the same degree about theological differences. And all of it seems to be pressing in on us from every side, surrounded and bombarded. And we're constantly sort of thinking, what's the worst case scenario here that could happen? And finding all of that in front of us, we feel overwhelmed and we believe we have no choice but to react in the same way that we see others reacting. And all we end up doing is contributing to the angst of the age. We're just jumping in. And this is what makes Nehemiah so surprising. (laughs) Is that when we read all these things that are happening to Nehemiah, all the things that people are doing, and how this is, we would assume it would impact him and what he would do in response, Nehemiah instead seems to act so differently. 
He never responds in the same way that they have reacted to him. He instead always responds in an alternative way. It is an alternative way that actually sort of points ahead and finds its fullest expression in the person of Jesus. That we find little ways here in the Old Testament of Nehemiah responding that prefigure for us what we actually see lived out in the person of Jesus and becomes the very call to us as the people of God. As Nehemiah's enemies mock and rage and threaten, it would make sense to us that Nehemiah would become dismayed, that he would lose hope, that he would be filled with some sort of anxiety about what is going to happen and begin to even be convinced that this isn't going to work, that what God placed on his heart isn't going to happen, that the only thing that could happen here is that this is going to end badly. But what Nehemiah does, what I think is actually the invitation for us when these things are happening to us, because we feel the same way when someone's mocking us or ridiculing us or threatening us, we begin to feel dismayed, we begin to feel anxiety. But what Nehemiah shows us is a way to hold on to hope. That actually the most critical thing that we can do in the midst of those moments is to actually hold on to hope. When they begin to oppose him, Nehemiah just very casually, very simply says, the God of heaven will give us success. He has hope. It's like all of these people are coming against us. They're trying all of these things. But Nehemiah, in the very core of who he is, believes it's going to work out. And within 52 days, it does. He rebuilds the walls in 52 days. And the Bible is filled with these kinds of stories. Stories of success and stories of victory and stories of breakthrough. Of course, these are not the only stories. There's also stories of exile and stories of defeat. Paul says that he was beaten and imprisoned in the subject of riots. Every year around the world, thousands of Christians are killed for their faith. So it reminds us that hope actually has to be something stickier than just success in this world. Our hope is not ultimately in success, but in God. And our hope is not ultimately for things in this world, but for in the world to come. Pete Gregg says that we don't hope for the future, we hope from the future. That we as the people of God actually know how this whole story is going to end, And the way that it ends is good news. And so we hold on to the hope that we know that despite anything that might be going on in the world, that we know actually how the whole thing is going to end. And therefore, we can endure all things in a different kind of way because we're holding on to hope, knowing, yeah, 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 that's actually not how this is going to play out. We see it modeled in Jesus, who for the very joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. He knew that there was something beyond the cross called resurrection. I think for us as the church in today's chronically anxious world, there may be nothing more important for us than to develop a robust theology of the end, a robust theology of hope a robust theology of resurrection and new creation. Most of the time we talk about things toward the end. All we do is create more fear and anxiety inside of us. 
Because we never actually get to the point of talking about when Jesus returns, he's gonna wipe away every tear from every eye. There's gonna be no more death and no more sickness and no more mocking and no more threats and no more any of those things. Instead, God is going to set everything right and make everything new and lovely and beautiful and great again. What we're called to do as the people of God in the midst of these moments is to actually hold on to hope. Not to give in to the other things that are happening around us, but to actually try to wrap our mind and our hearts around the resurrection. To clutch on to new creation and to discover that it's actually the resurrected one who's wrapping himself around us. Who's holding on to us. In the midst of our fear and our anxiety and our grief and our pain, we need a new robust theology. There's been various times throughout my life where I've just had mild panic attacks. Oftentimes they've been uh, when I just suddenly out of nowhere feel suddenly gripped by a fear of death. I remember the first one as a kid, just not being able to sleep and being so worried about what death was going to feel like and what life after death was, if there was one. This is before I was a Christian running into my parents' room and just weeping, sleeping on their floor just because I couldn't have sweating through Times as a, a young adult where driving all of a sudden just gripped and needed to pull over and breathe. And there have been times that various things that I've been anxious about where I've needed the help of counselors and mental health practices and those things to walk through those times. But the other thing that has been so important for me in walking through my own struggles in the middle of this has been to theologically imagine what new creation is going to be like. And to anchor my heart and my soul to what's to come. Because it's only when we are tethered to Jesus and to his return that we can actually begin to think about how do we respond differently in this world. Because otherwise, we just seem to be trying to catch on and grasp and control and figure out because we feel like this is all we have. But for the people of God, we know that there is something more. We can respond differently. We can respond in the way of Jesus when we know that there is a hope that awaits for us even beyond the pain and suffering. And then out of that hope, out of that hope, the second thing that we can do is we can release vengeance. Now, when I first put this slide up as we were going through, someone looked at me and said, who are we releasing vengeance upon? <laughs> like, no, 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 not release vengeance in that way, but let it go. <laughs> to actually just say, okay, I don't need to take revenge Instead of throwing a punch, Nehemiah prays. And when he prays, he entrusts the justice that he, wa- that the justice that he wants to God. Nehemiah 4, 4 and 5 says, listen, God, we're despised. They're mocking us, talking about foxes on our walls. But would you turn their insults to us back on their heads and make them like plunder in a captive land. Don't forgive their iniquity or blot out their sins from your sight. They have thrown insults at the builders. This is one of those prayers in the Bible that make us a little bit uncomfortable. But what these prayers actually do is they help us to be honest with God about what it is that we would like to do ourselves. And then in doing so, we can release it to the God who actually can bring about justice because we can't. And so rather than saying, okay, this is what I want to do to them and I'm going to pay it back to them, Nehemiah instead turns to God and he lets it go. He lets it go to God rather than releasing it in anger to others. This is what Nehemiah and all the lament psalms teach us to do. 
It teaches us to take all of those emotions we're having to God in prayer rather than to take it out in others in anger. This is the invitation to a new way to hold on to hope. And then in that hope that we know the God who is going to make everything right again in the world, we can release things in prayer saying, okay, we're just gonna entrust that to you. We're gonna entrust it to you. And when we're held in hope and we refuse to take vengeance into our own hands, then we can follow the way of Nehemiah and we can carry on. This is, you know, keep calm and carry on as our friends across the pond teach us. The schemes that the enemies of Nehemiah had all were designed to get him to stop working. They just wanted him to stop. But Nehemiah very simply says at various points, but we just continued to build the wall. <laughs> we just kept putting rock upon rock. We just kept doing what we knew it was that God had called us to do. We kept on with the work. Paul encourages us throughout his letters to do the same. He tells us to press on to the goal that's set before us, to not grow weary in doing good, to not grow weary in doing what's right, not to lose heart because someday these things will not just pass, someday they'll be made right. Someday they'll be redeemed. Someday they'll be restored. So we can continue on with what God has set before us, trusting the one who our hope is in. Now, Nehemiah carried on, but he carried on in different ways. He carried on with some wisdom. He carried on by putting some protective measures into place, even as they were doing the work. Nehemiah 4, 9 says, and we set a guard of, as protection against them day and night. Nehemiah, as we see it through the, this book, says that he had everybody stay together. There's a tendency to scatter in these moments. No, just stay together. Had them sleep in the city. Split their workforce. So at times there were folks who were working and times who were standing guard. The workers at times were working with their uh, instruments in one hand and weapons in another. There are times as we think about uh, those who intend to do evil in the world that our call is to protect ourselves, to protect others, to protect the work itself, to set boundaries, to be wise and discerning in all of those moments. To say, okay, there is evil, there is an enemy, we need to be wise in the middle of all of this. And yet we as the people of God, now on the other side of the cross and resurrection, also know and remember what Paul told us, that we now fight in different ways that we now fight with what he calls weapons of righteousness. Colossians, 2 Colossians, Corinthians, sorry, verse, uh, chapter six, verse five says, we went through all these things. We went through beatings, imprisonments, and riots. He said other things earlier. We experienced hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. But this is how we responded. This is what we did when we were oppressed. This is what we did when we were under threat. This is what we did when others were mocking us. We displayed purity. And knowledge or discernment. We were patient. We remained generous, open-handed in giving. We served. We served the Holy Spirit with genuine love. We served by even speaking the truth. Later he tells us speaking the truth in love. And we served by relying on God's power. And in doing so, we carried the weapons of righteousness in our right hand and our left hands. This is, I think, where Paul reminds us of the way of Jesus and where the way of Jesus ultimately leads. We've heard it said to love our neighbors, but Jesus pushes us to another place. 
says, you have heard it said, Matthew chapter five, you have heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who harass you. Pray for those who persecute you. This is the radical climax of the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, all find their sort of radical point in this moment where Jesus says, not just love your neighbor, not just love your friend, not just love your family member, not just love those who love you, not just love those who are nice to you, not just love those who can pay it back to you in kind, but to actually love even our enemies. Jesus instructs us to love more, to carry on in love, to lead with love, to reply with love, to let love be our first punch and love be our last punch that we throw as the people of God. Because when we do not love, we do not win. When we do not love, we do not win. Because when we do not love, we place ourselves outside of the way of Jesus. But instead, as the people of God, what we're called to do is to love others, including our enemies, including those that would mock us and threaten us and falsely accuse us and question us, surround us and gang up against us. He calls us to love them the same way that he loved us. Because while we were still enemies, while we set ourselves up against the ways and plans and purposes of God, when we rebelled against God's best plans for us, God did not return our insults with more insults. He did not return our ways of trying to intimidate him with ways of intimidating us. He did not return our threats with threats. Instead, he sent his only son, Jesus, to come into the world and to give himself for us, to die for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, God rescued us. He reconciled us. He came after us. He bled for us. He loved us in those moments. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, I want us to lead us into just a time of prayer this morning. If you would, would you close your eyes and maybe even open your hands, whatever is a comfortable posture for you. Because we're actually just gonna follow the way of Jesus this morning. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who harass us. And so maybe during this sermon today, you were like, had a picture of somebody who's mocked you, made you feel less. Maybe there's a moment where you remembered somebody who's just tried to confuse you, tried to confuse your understanding of who you are and what you're called to do and in some way set themselves up against you. Maybe you feel like there was a time where just somebody trapped you in something, enticed you, turned out to be for your ill. Maybe a moment you felt falsely accused or attacked or intimidated. Would you just begin this morning to pray for that person or for those people as a way of following in the way of Jesus, 
prayer for our enemies is a great act of love. Wisdom tells us that there are folks that when they're unrepentant, we can no longer be in relationship with them in the same way we were. It's unwise. We have to set up a guard and protect ourselves or those that we love or the things that we're called to do. And yet what we can continue to do is pray. And we can pray in such a way that we ask God to bring them to repentance, to draw him near, those folks near to himself, to bring them to true change, to transform their hearts. And so Jesus, we think about those people this morning. those who've tried to take the hope we have away from us. But instead, would you hold us in hope this morning? And we would really like to get even or even win in a way that is following the ways of the world, sort of ways that we know are not the ways of Jesus, but help us to entrust our vengeance to you. You do whatever you need to do to them to get them to stop. But in doing so, would you be kind to them the way that you were kind to us? Would you rescue them from the things that are destroying their lives and others' lives in the way that you rescued us? Would you redeem them? Would you restore them? Would you let your sun shine and your rain fall on them, just as it has on us? And as we come to the table, would your rain fall and your sun shine on us once again? Would you forgive us for all the ways that we have followed in these same old patterns of mocking and threatening and intimidating and accusing and followed in ways other than love? Would you forgive us and let your love shower us again today as we remember the love of God displayed in Jesus. Amen. So friends, this is the moment where we come to the table together. And this is the Lord's table. This is Jesus' table. All who believe that Jesus is king are welcomed here. He is the true king of the world. If you Walk into that belief, regardless of your church background or affiliation. We welcome you here at this table. And if you don't believe as we believe, thank you for choosing to spend a Sunday with us. We're honored that you're here, and we encourage you to keep coming, keep asking questions, keep seeking after Jesus. But if you're ready to believe in Jesus and follow his teachings, this could be a moment for you to join in with us as we confess our sins as we ask for forgiveness from God.
and as we place our trust in him together. Let's pray this prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So from this, it's my joy to announce this good news to you. Words that are true, not just because we say them, but because of what God has done in Christ. So open your hands and receive again the mercy of God today. For Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. This proves God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. As forgiven people, would you stand raised in new life with Jesus and greet those around you in the peace of the Lord. We'll give some extra time to do this today, not just passing the peace, but say hello as we didn't get a chance to do that earlier in this service. So from this peace, as people walking in this peace, let us join together and proclaim these truths with one voice. Jesus is here. His spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Yeah, would you do that? Would you give our God your thanks and your praise? Oh, we praise you. Yeah, we praise you, Lord. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, for you formed us in your image and you breathed your life in us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And so let us remember this story. On the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread when he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts, God, 
your acts in Jesus Christ. We proclaim this mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of the priesthood of believers. So as we ask the Holy Spirit to come, would you stretch your hands out toward these elements, asking God to fill them and remember us into the body of Christ through them? Lord, we pray, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ returns in final victory. Amen. So I'd like to invite the servers to come forward. And this is how we'll come to the table today. These are the gifts of God. These are given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you and feed on him in your hearts with thanksgiving. So some simple instructions for us. In just a moment, we'll come forward to receive. And and here's how it can work. Beginning in the front of each section, we ask you to exit to the left if you're able and come forward. If you're in the balcony, we invite you to join us on the right side of the house and join into this section. There's also some prepackaged elements on a table up there for you if you'd like to partake in those. If you're unable to come forward, just ask someone near you. Extend a hand of greeting and ask them to bring some elements back for you so that you may partake in this gift with us. And if you aren't going to receive today, that's okay. We just, we ask that you move through the rows with everyone in these auditorium rows that we have and just walk by the servers and return to your seat. If you are going to receive the elements today, we ask that you come with your hands open. The first server in the line will place a napkin in your hand for you. And then another server will take a gluten-free cracker for you, dip it in the wine and place it in your hands with that napkin. You can receive right then and there through the procession or go ahead back to your seats and prayerfully partake with those around you. And if you would prefer prepackaged elements, we also have those available for you in the baskets. Today we have two sections in each of these stations and one over here on the right. If there are two sections, we ask that you alternate between them, one to the other, just to help things move through. And if you'd like to have someone pray for you, this very same team will stay at the front to pray for you after services are over. So keep that in mind and feel free to come and pray with them at the end of service. And as we come to the table, let's continue our worship and worship together. the power to raise the dead who can save us from our sin he is our hope our righteousness Jesus only Jesus who can make the blind to see who holds the keys that set us free he paid it all to bring us peace 
message amen what a powerful message hold on to hope 
if you're in need of hope, that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Our prayer team is here, and they're willing to go to the God of hope on your behalf if you're in need. I pray a blessing of hope over you. Hope came for you. Hope lived for you. Hope died for you. Hope was resurrected for you. And hope is returning for you. Can't wait to see you next week, guys. Go out in peace.